This is Owen Tinder Jones. I'm Owen Vaughan Williams. This is Tash Harden. And you are listening to the Owen Tinder Podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest Coleman Had a Dream podcast, a special podcast. Uh, I'm joined as ever by Ruth. Hello, Ruth. Hello, hello, everyone. And we are also joined by Wales's all-time leading top goal scorer, Helen Ward. Thank you for joining us, Helen. Thank you for having me, I should say. <laughs> um, so we just wanted to talk a little bit to Helen about her career, uh, becoming a footballer, what's it, what it's like um, playing for big clubs like Watford Arsenal, uh, and also her Wales career as well. Looking forward to the friendly against Estonia in a week, but also the uh, the wider qualification picture and how we stand looking forward to hopefully qualifying for Euro 2021. Um, Ruth, I think you're going to start us off. Well, really, Helen, firstly, thank you. I wanted to start off with um, discussing basically how you got into football in the first place. We've talked to a few of the uh, women players who are now internationals with, with Wales and often it's been a sort of accidental story but but you seem to have started very young with Watford. Yeah I um I was always interested in football mostly because my older brother played um so I found myself on the side of pitches when he was playing games just kicking the ball around on my own um there weren't any other girls playing um but I used to just love it I used to play in the garden with him um and then when I was about eight or nine he went off to senior school and he came home one day with a flyer for a local girls team which happened to be Watford and he said you know you enjoy playing you're quite good why don't you go along so I wrote two friends into it and we went along um, to a training session in a small hall with a wooden floor had to take your own ball Um, and when I turned up the manager there was an A and a B team and the manager said like you know we're quite we're quite a good club. We consider ourselves as quite elite in this area. Um, so if Helen's not good enough, then you know we're not going to take her on. I thought, okay, no problem. So I was, I was minding my own business, kicking the ball against the wall um, before the session started. And um, before I knew it, he'd come up to me and said, "We've been watching you kick the ball against the wall, and we'd like you to come up and train with the the A team." I was like, oh, okay, cool, no problem. Um, and then. After the session, they invited me along to play in a tournament that weekend. And the first game of the tournament, I scored a hat-trick. So it kind of went from there. And yeah, um, from that minute on, it was just everything I, I wanted to do was just play football. You know, it was I lived and breathed it at the time. But obviously, not knowing how far it, it might go in the long run. Those first kind of positive experiences are so in, important, aren't they? The, you know, the fact that even your brother was encouraging you um, at a time when you know, big brothers probably didn't necessarily think that their little sisters could be footballers. And then you immediately got a positive response from those uh, those coaches at, at Watford. It, it really makes such a difference. Just going to say it's funny, actually, because having spoken to Rhiannon Roberts, she said the same thing about the reason she got into football was so she could play in the back garden with her brothers. Um, and, and, and Jess <laughs> mm-hmm. Fishlock said exactly the same thing about wanting to kind of compete with her brother. So it's interesting how the uh, how the three of you are very similar in that sense, I guess. Yeah, I think it is quite common. That, you know, with our, our sort of generation, um, I won't mention our ages, but <laughs> um, it probably was down to, to brothers or family members or, or close friends at school. Mm. Uh, rather than, you know, being involved in, in a girls team or having girls as friends who had similar interests. Um, so we were kind of lone rangers in that sense that we were the only girls or one of very few um, that we knew of that played. Um, but yeah, it's, I have, my brother always says I have to credit him for my career and I, I tend to agree with him to an extent um, because he was the one that encouraged me and there was never that judgment of you're a girl, you can't play. I was always a bit of a tomboy, so joined in with everything that he did, whether it was football or anything else. Um, you know, and the same goes for my parents and my close family that it was never a case of why are you playing, you're a girl. It was kind of like, okay, you enjoy it, you're quite good, why don't, you know, carry on. There was there was always that support and I'm fortunate that I came, I come from a family who are a very sport sports oriented you know my mum she still plays netball um she's gonna be 66 next week so you know and she's still playing netball my dad plays golf he used to play hockey football cricket everything you can imagine so it's um it's just sort of been in my genes from a young age to to play sport and and football happened to be the one that, that I chose to pursue yeah and then from there through to you know eventually being um 
a professional, semi-professional footballer. What was the road sort of through your teenage years, Helen? Yeah, so it was very similar in the fact that I, I just carried on playing because I enjoyed it and made a lot of friends at Watford. I spent my whole time up until, you know, I was, I think, 22 or almost 22 But by the time I left Watford. And, and it became a place of, you know, comfort, really, and security that that was a place that I knew I was I was wanted. I, I, I was quite good. I always enjoyed it. And it was never a case of I want to play and, and get to the top of the sport. It was just this is me in this moment and I'm enjoying it. And it, it kind of just went from one thing to another kind of accidentally, which which is nice. And, you know, quite, sometimes I look back and think, well, if I'd have known this back then, could I have got even further? If I'd have trained in the way I train now and, and you know, known all the sports sciences around it, could have it it been different but there's no point really in, in mm. dwelling on that and I, I've loved my career right from being that eight-year-old kid in the sports hall to now I, I I wouldn't really change a thing if I'm honest and um I think the main factor was that I enjoyed it and that was the key for me if I wasn't enjoying it I don't think I would have achieved what I have done um so those early years were all just about enjoyment that support for my friends my family and you're going through your teenage years and you're missing birthday parties or nights out sometimes that can be difficult and you can have that pressure of um, people sort of judging you for playing football instead of going out to a party. But my, my friends were never like that. And I was lucky that they understood that Helen plays football and, and that's cool and we'll support her with it and we'll see her when we can kind of thing. So I'm still friends with a lot of them now and they still always ask me about football and it's nice to have that kind of support without them being involved in it, if that makes sense. Yeah. And was there a, a key moment or perhaps a, a key coach or, or mentor in that journey where where you thought to yourself, actually, I, I can be a footballer as, a, as opposed to a recreational footballer? Probably the first time I got asked to play for Wales, I'd say. Um, I'd been on... Well, Sean Williams, actually, she took over at Watford when I was... I must have been about 19 or 20... Um, around that sort of age and she she came from Arsenal and she'd won everything in the game she played for England I think she'd also played for Wales somehow I'm not sure how it works but <laughs> um, her and her now husband took over at Watford and initially she got me sort of got in touch with coaches at England um, and which we'll talk about a bit later um, but then it was Carl her husband who was the assistant manager of Wales, and he sort of once sort of a throwaway comment said, "Oh, you haven't, you haven't got any Welsh uh, grandparents, have you?" And I kind of smiled and said, "Well, yeah, actually, my mum's parents are both Welsh." Um, and he said, "Well, what do you think? Do you fancy it?" And it was, you know, at the time it was kind of a bit of a, a situation I wasn't expecting, so I had to obviously think about it. But I had a teammate, Sally Wade. Um, who had already played for Wales and she was telling me about it and how great it was and what a, a brilliant setup it was to be part of. Um, and then she talked of a story going to Germany for a qualifier and, you know, everything that surrounded that. I think it was their goalkeeper's last ever game and she was a massive, massive player in, in those times and she said that the crowd was fantastic and, you know, you're getting clapped to take a corner and stuff like that. And I thought, you know what, I want to be a part of this. So I went along and, and kind of the rest was history. But that was kind of the moment where I thought this is a little bit more serious than just playing for fun now. Um, and, you know, as I said, ever since then, it's just gone from one one level to another and I've been thankful to have that as part of my journey. Yeah. So, I mean, people may not know, but you you actually were involved with the England under under twenty threes. Is that the right? That's right. Yeah. The, the right. Yeah. Description. Um, and, and played for them briefly. Um, why do you feel that didn't work out for you personally, whereas Wales did, Helen? Um, I just never really felt part of it I felt like I was there as a token gesture um as I said Sean had sort of put them put me in their sort of eye line if that makes mm -hmm. sense um saying you know Helen scored this many goals this season you really should be having a look at her um so it was almost as if they felt they had to pick me rather than wanted to mm -hmm. um and then once I got there I think I had three camps with them one of two of them I was called up for and one I got called up from standby and I just didn't ever feel settled. I didn't feel part of the group of girls, mm. you know, nothing against them. I just never, 
it just didn't really fit my personality for one reason or another. Um, a couple of comments by coaches didn't help where I felt like they didn't really know me as a player and as, or as a person. And it got to the point where I was put on standby for another camp and, and I was desperate not to go. And I kind of thought, that's not right. That's not how you should be feeling about, yeah. you know, being called up to to play international football. Um, whereas with Wales, it, it's never, ever felt like that. I, I can't wait to go on camp. And even now it's, you know, it's such a, a great feeling to go away with the girls and they're, they're so much like a family to me. I know it sounds so cliche, but we all do really get on well and we've all got each other's backs and it's always been that that close-knit environment, which I, I never felt when I had that time with England. We do see the family part of it. I mean, I think it's one of the most striking things to observe as a, as a supporter is mm. that you do seem like one genuinely happy family. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure... Emily and Charlie, your two kids, they, they feel like they have this extended network of, <laughs> of ants who are scattered all over the world. Um, you can just see that in, you know, in the, the, the times when you guys are on the pitch, post-games with your families mm. and things. And, and as a supporter, it's one of the things I really enjoy about watching you women play is that it does seem so much more than just a bunch of people playing football. Yeah, I mean, it, it probably comes from... The fact that a Welsh people are that way anyway, you know, it's it's kind of a Welsh thing to be close and happy and friendly and and just generally lovely. Um, <laughs> but I I also think that we have a we have a smaller pool of players to choose from, um, which is you know that's that's fact. But I think that brings us together because we know that there there are, there's a lot more competition than there ever was. Don't get me wrong, but we know that. Sorry. My mum was phoning me. Um, if we ever, <laughs> we know that if um, so that was that's your Welsh mum, right? On <laughs> if we ever want to achieve something, we're going to have to do it as a small group. You know, with one or two coming in and out each camp, we're going to have to do it as a group of people that are rooting for the same thing. It's not a case of you're just going to be replaced at the drop of the hat if something doesn't go well we know we have to perform and we know we have to stick together and and I think that shows like you said on the pitch and yeah the, the kids love coming on to camp when they get the chance and they come into the the dinner room or whatever and everybody's all over them and they're making people laugh and it's a really nice environment to bring them into and you know they feel welcomed which which puts me at ease as well. <laughs> um, it's funny you should say that actually I'm a friend of a friend of mine who played semi-pro she said a similar sort of thing about the England setup where it was almost this feeling of we've got our set of players and we're kind of happy with what we've got at the minute and there was a few kind of call-ups to people who were just almost tokenistic and she said that that didn't really mm. encourage that you know the way she felt about wanting to play for England or be involved in that setup and she kind of drifted away from it in the end and like still as you know had a good career in in sport and, and football but um it's interesting again, like we were talking about how the positivity and the family aspect and all of these things, a lot of people say the same thing about the the, the Wales squad, but it's interesting how many people say the similar thing about the the England squad as well. Yeah, I mean, obviously we're going back what, over 10 years now since I, I was involved. So I can't really judge how it is now. I'm sure every player that's played for England is very proud to have done so and, and the players are involved I'm sure enjoy it, but for me, it just didn't fit my personality and, and how I was as a person or a player. Um, so I, I don't want to sit here and, you know, try and make out that it, it was a bad place full of bad people because that's not the case. It just mm -hmm. it just didn't work out for me at that time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as I said, I don't regret anything in my career. And in a way, I think that is almost the best thing that could have happened to me was to to not enjoy it because it, it brought to me the best times of my footballing life by by coming over to Wales and and representing a country that I love. Um, just going back briefly to your your club career, um, you won the Women's Premier League with Arsenal. What was your experience about kind of being around that squad and what was a very famous side at the time? Oh, it was unbelievable for me. Um, again, that was that was probably another turning point in my career that where it took that that extra step up again. Um, it was just before Christmas in 2008 that I found out they were interested in me. And, you know, I'd never envisaged leaving Watford. I, I, as I said, I'd always enjoyed it. It had been part of my life for so long. I knew people there that I'd played with for so many years. And to suddenly, I actually had a, cu a couple of other opportunities in 
in the same week. Um, one was Leeds, which would never have worked at that point because I'm not sure how I would have got up there to, yeah. to train and play. And, and the other was Chelsea, um, who weren't at the same kind of level they are now. They were still a very good side, obviously. Um, but then when Arsenal came in, it, it was kind of like, well, hang on, you've got to have a good think about this because although you're happy at Watford, it is Arsenal. They're the best team in the country. They're, you know, they recently won um, the UEFA Cup as it was then. And, you know, you've got this opportunity. Can you really turn it down? If you don't do it, you, you'll never know what might have happened. Um, so although it was a difficult decision to leave because of, as I said, the enjoyment of Watford, I knew I had to do it. Um, turning up to training and seeing the likes of Kelly Smith, Jane Ludlow, Rachel Yankee, Kira yeah. Grant, you know, these people that had won everything in the game and were such incredible players that I'd only ever played against. Um, it was a bit daunting. And, you know, that year and a half I spent at Arsenal, it taught me an awful lot. Do I think I gave everything I could as a player? Probably not, because maybe I was in a bit, I don't know, a bit in awe of some of the players. But I still learned a lot that has then carried on through the rest of my career. Um, but to be involved in league-winning, uh, title-winning teams, um, winning the FA Cup and being involved in games of that magnitude was amazing. You know, the, the, the FA Cup final of 2009, we played at Derby County, um, won the game 2-0 against Sunderland. And it was just an unbelievable experience to go and lift the FA Cup. So although... It wasn't my best years in terms of playing. It, it was something again that I'd never, I'd never change, and I, and I don't regret going there by any means. To say that I've played for one of the best teams in the world at the time um, and won things with them, scored goals. Um, it was, it was. <laughs> sorry, say hello, Hi, Charlie. Charlie. <laughs> Hi, Charlie. <laughs> um, it was, it was a time in my life that. Yeah, it was it was fantastic, and as I said, it then moved me on to the next next part of my career. Um, obviously, that obviously propelled you part, partly, I'd imagine, to playing for Wales, um, and obviously you scored on your debut against Luxembourg as well. Um, mm -hmm. That's like a, obviously a hell of a marker to kind of lay down, but obviously um, something you must be very proud of as well. Yeah, definitely. My my debut was um, it was in the, the pouring rain in Luxembourg. It was freezing. The hotel we stayed in was tiny, um, but just to be away making my debut for an international football was incredible. And I remember in the warm-up, I'd been we'd been doing a, a keep ball sort of small-sided thing, and I was on Jane's team. And I remember just thinking, "Don't give the ball away because she'll shout at you." <laughs> <laughs> um, so then, when it got to the game, and I scored, I think I scored our first goal. I think, in fact, we might have gone one nil down. Yeah, one one nil down. Equaliser. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the players obviously came and congratulated me, and, and Jane was one of the first ones to come over and she said, "We've got a goal scorer for like finally." And I thought, <laughs> right, okay, she likes me. It's all good yeah. um, because obviously she was such a big character in the team and um, uh, won everything that she could have done at club level. And so to have her sort of appraisal was was fantastic for me. And yeah, it was. It was nice to to get off the mark so early in my career, and and that sort of weight was on, wasn't on my shoulders for very long because it came obviously early in the in my first game. So it was kind of the start I needed, and you know from there, it was it was nice to score pretty regularly from there on. I was going to say because following through, like doing a little bit of research on a few different things, I didn't realise that in one game you scored six goals against Azerbaijan. <laughs> I think it was, which is absolutely incredible. Yeah, it's a, it's funny that one because. That campaign was a really, really strange one for us. Um, we'd, we'd got our first ever win, I think, in qualifying uh, matches when we beat... I can't even think who we beat at this point, but it was off... I know it was off... I think it might have been Belgium away. It was the first time Wales had ever won a game in qualifying. Um, right. Then we had the disappointment of going away to Azerbaijan and losing 2-1, which, of course, is not a good result. Um, so to then, in the return game... Um, up in Mid Wales, I think it was, um, to win fifteen nil and score six was like how how does that happen in in yeah. a in the same campaign where you've lost two one to the same opponent? Um, but obviously it was again it was a another special moment for me and I think I was the first ever player to score a hat trick for Wales in that game. 
um, obviously came home with the match ball and remember that day very fondly. And it was, you know, some some days you just have those moments where everything you touch is a goal. I think I scored one was an accidental goal. <laughs> I, I tried to cross. I actually apologised to the girl in the middle who I was aiming for, but it went straight in. So it, it was just my day that day and someone was looking down on me and uh, making everything go in. So, yeah, another special moment. Most of the goals that I score, you know, at seven aside, which is obviously nowhere near the similar level. Most of mine are accidental <laughs> as well. So I, I very much am on board with that one. Um, um, obviously, to go from there, you've obviously gone on, you know, we're going to talk about your Wales career in more depth, but you've gone on to score 42 goals, I think it is. Um, does it bother you in any way that Gareth Bale is often referred to as Wales's all-time leading goal scorer when in actual fact it's you? <laughs> no, it, honestly, it really doesn't. I think what Gareth's done for Wales is incredible and you know I fully expect him to go on and score another 10, 15, 20 goals for Wales so it, it doesn't bother me in, in the slightest I understand that men's football and, and Gareth Bale in particular they're, they're such huge thing. it's just a huge thing isn't it um, and the majority of people will watch men's football and not watch women's football and that's fine and you know I'm very proud of my record Um you know, I'd, I'd like to have added to it in the, in recent years. I haven't scored for quite a while, but um, no, I, I, I don't really see the need to make any comparison. I've scored my goals, he scored his goals, and I'm sure he's as proud as he, of his tally as I am of mine. And, you know, it, it gets to be a bit of a joke sometimes, and it's very nice when people stick up for me on social media to, <laughs> you know, try and correct people that say he's the top goal scorer, but it's it's not a problem to me at all, and I honestly don't have any resentment towards that one bit. Um, you kind of alluded there to the fact you haven't scored for a little bit. I think, am I right in saying it was against Israel was the last goal you got for Wales? Uh, no, I think it was in the Cyprus Cup uh, in 2017. Um, I was actually 14 weeks pregnant with Charlie. Oh, no way. <laughs> and I scored against, I want to say Hungary, but I could be wrong when I say Hungary, but it was definitely in the Cyprus Cup. Um and I kind of fell over as I scored. Nobody obviously knew I was pregnant at the time. Um, and has and Harry James jumped on me and celebrated. And then when they all found out um, what was going on, she was like, I can't believe you let me jump on you like that. And um, so it was a bit of a joke. But yeah, that, that was my last goal. So I haven't, I haven't, he scored the last goal that I scored for Wales. Yeah, there you go. Charlie's definitely got an assist on that one. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, that's actually talking about being pregnant. I said, let's take a, a change of, of tack. We'll we'll kind of cycle back to the to the actual football. But I wanted to talk to you a little, Helen, because you've been very obvious about very publicly obvious about um, the situations you've faced with various football clubs when you've been starting your family or, or, or had your pregnancies. And, and, and in fact, I was, I was reading about sometimes when you even know you haven't been given contracts because of your family situation. Um, and I, I just wanted to talk a little bit about that sort of discrimination and those effects on you, know, on you as a mum and on you as a player. Over here at the minute, for example, in the US, Alex Morgan is getting... A lot of what I think are quite inappropriate kind of timeline questions with mm. the Olympics coming up and, you know, when will, she, when will she be ready to play again for the US? And yeah. it, just, it just seems inappropriate. But I was wondering if you could explore your experiences a little bit. Yeah, um, just to begin with Alex Morgan, I think with it being her first child especially, it, mm. it's impossible to say how long somebody's going to be um, out of the game for because you just don't know how your body's going to react even if it's not your first child every pregnancy is so different mm -hmm. um, so for people to be putting that sort of pressure on her I'm sure in her own head she's got her own pressures and when she wants to be back to her best and so forth but even she won't know exactly what's going to mm -hmm. happen when it comes to the birth and everything beyond that you, you just don't know um, so it's a bit insensitive for me um for people to be asking that question but at the same time she's obviously such a huge player for that team um that I'm sure people are asking with good intention and, and they want her to be involved so I don't think it comes from a bad place but maybe just a little bit of of ignorance and mm -hmm. you know not being as educated in that area perhaps yeah um, and I think that's that's the biggest thing I found is um it's because there's not so many women 
in sport in general that will carry on a high profile or a high level career after having children there's not a lot to go on and I, and I found that in particular with having Emily um I didn't understand what I should and shouldn't be doing during pregnancy so for anyone else to understand it would you know would be silly to expect so um I think there just needs to be more support around the athlete uh, around the athlete's club or organization whatever it might be um and just educating what the best way is to go about it both physically and mentally um in terms of contracts and things like that i just find that people make judgments for you you know going back to alex morgan people are expecting her to be back at this time because that's the norm or what they perceive as the norm um and for me it was kind of like well we didn't think you could commit to this or that because of you've got a family but maybe my situation is very different to someone else's. I may be able to give that time where somebody else can't. You have to take each case um, on its own merit. And I think that's the biggest problem is, is the lack of understanding and the lack of education surrounding everything to do with uh, women having children um, whilst playing sport. Um, and again, I don't think any of it comes from a bad place necessarily. Um, it's just the, the not understanding um, and sometimes insensitivity towards it. Yeah. Did you find that, like with the contracts that you didn't, you th- you feel you didn't receive because of, of people's perceptions of where you were on your sort of family's journey, mm-hmm. do you feel that there's any been any improvement in, in that sort of thing, chatting with, you know, your perhaps your slightly younger colleagues that are at similar places? It also seems like Watford are a bit of a model club in terms of, mm. for example, they took you on when you were, you were still, I don't quite know the timeline, but when you were still yeah. looking after Charlie. Um, mm-hmm. So how have you seen things improve? Yeah, definitely. I, I don't know too many people. I know Siobhan Chamberlain, who's at Manchester mm. United, is still very much involved with the club and she's just had her daughter. Um, and I'm sure there's not any pressure on her to be getting back between the sticks until she's ready. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do believe that there are areas, I think contracts now have or can have some sort of maternity um, put into them. Right. Uh, when I was in that situation, I was only ever on part-time contracts. They were never professional. So mm-hmm. whether that made a difference, I don't know. Um, I, my situation, I think pregnancy and childcare was used as an, as an excuse rather than a reason. I think it was a, I'd rather they would be honest and, not offer me a contract because of footballing reasons uh, mm-hmm. rather than trying to make me feel better and make it feel like it's a, a family reason. Um, but that that's something that obviously I'll never know the answer to 100%. That's just how I feel. Um, in terms of Watford, yeah, they signed me when I was actually uh, just over eight months pregnant. So I was massive when I, <laughs> when I first met the manager and the general manager at the time. And for them to put that faith in me and even Rich Walker, who is one of the board members at, at Watford um he was fully behind me and, and and coming home to Watford and understood perfectly my situation and they they came up with a, an agreement whereby I work for the club as well as play but it was all to fit in around you know my children and my my situation at home you know I'm, I'm trusted to do the the job to my best ability but I'm, I'm also trusted to do it where I can and when I can um, and that and that's been massive for me and my family. It's allowed me to continue making a living without having to make ridiculous sacrifices that that were unrealistic or unfair on my husband or children or anybody else involved. So I have to be forever grand, uh, thankful for that. Um, and I do believe that Watford, in all areas of um, you know supporting their their staff and players, I think they are they are a model club, as you said. And you know it's a club I'm, I'm obviously very proud to be a part of. Can I just jump in a quick second there? Just, to, just is that like a common thing for players to be given roles beyond football as part of their contract, or is that literally just a what for things? I saw Megan Wynn was in a similar situation. She was working for Tottenham, uh, playing football, yeah. but also kind of doing um, something else with as part of the club. Is that is that a common thing? I think it's it's fairly common. It certainly used to be before clubs were professional. So. I'm sure there'll be clubs in the championship and below where they're able to to provide jobs. You know, when I first signed for Arsenal, some of the girls, or a lot of the girls, in fact, worked behind the scenes um, 
doing bits and bobs. I think Kira was the club secretary, organised all of the the first team things that were going on. Jane used to work in the academy while still playing. A lot of the girls worked in the kit room. So it's definitely something that's been around for a long time. As I said, the girls that are playing in, in WSL um, as professionals and the likes of Jess, who are obviously fully professional abroad, that doesn't need to happen because they are paid to play football on a full-time basis. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm certain that there will be other cases around the country that where players are able to work for the club because it just makes it easier and, and it means that when they need time to play football, it, their employers understand and it, you don't have to sort of take holiday or you know, unpaid leave to go and play games or go away internationally. And, and that's a, it's a huge t- support to a player when they haven't got that sort of on their shoulders of wondering if and when they can have the time off. No, that makes sense. I wanted to ask a little bit about contracts, actually, Helen, because obviously over here in the US, there's quite an agenda. And understandably, given the success of the women's game, um, the level of crowds that um, are going to watch women's game, to try and get something closer to equal pay. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a kind of justification level here in terms of the the money that the women's teams are bringing in to a club setup and the, and the success of the international team. Um, it doesn't seem like the agenda is is quite there over over in Europe. What What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think um, for a long time now, Europe has been behind the US in that sense. And, you know, I've said it many times recently in interviews where people are arguing that, equal pay is not fair why are women asking for equal pay but I think you have to look at it differently as to you know the US and the rest of the world because like you said that there's a lot of justification for those US players to be calling for equal pay because they bring the revenue in they bring the supporters in they sold the most shirts on Nike Nike's website um you know their world cup shirts sold more in a year than any other shirt has and you know you can't argue against those facts so you you have to say that they deserve it they they're consistent winners they win everything they go in for more or less you know and i'm sure they're going to be looking to the olympics and doing the same so there isn't really an argument against it whereas over here um particularly in the uk the men's side of it brings in millions and millions and millions and as a women's section we're not we're not there yet we're nowhere near it so to then I don't think actually anybody is trying to get equal pay I think it's people that aren't involved in the game that are perhaps calling for it on our behalf but actually if you ask most female players or the ones I've spoken to none of us are claiming you know I'm not claiming I should be earning the same as Troy Deeney because I don't bring in the same money or commercial or anything mm-hmm. else that, that him and, and the guys do. Um, but I think what we do want is to just be treated with the same level of respect. You know, we still put in the hours, we still train as hard as them, we still do everything we can to be the best we can. And that's all we want is a bit of respect for that. And then if we get that, perhaps the crowds come in more, perhaps the commercial deals go up, and then you can start talking about increasing the pay. But you have to do it in a very gradual way. There's no point in just chucking millions of pounds a day and hoping for the best. It has to be it has to be thought through and it has to be a, a process that is gradual. Um, and, you know, each side of it grows together. Um, otherwise, I think you're just going to have what's happened in the US in the past where money's been thrown at it, it hasn't succeeded and everything's crashed. Yeah. Um, whereas now it seems to be a lot more sustainable. The NWSL seems to be going much better than it ever was. I can't say that I know an awful lot about it, but you know, just hearing from the likes of Jess and seeing what you do on social media, that that's the kind of, um, I can't think of the word, the, the kind of structure that you want, something that, that has grown organically rather than just been sort of as I said chucked money at and and hope for the best it's got to be sustainable as well hasn't it like that you know there's there's no point getting the money in the short term and everyone having a party about it and then in in a year's time there's no football left to be played or no one can afford to rent the stadium or whatever it needs to be sustainable yeah of course that's the major thing for me there was an interesting article I was reading I think it might have been in the independent of several former players who had actually been offered full-time contracts but the amounts were just at a point where even though they could have gone full-time professional the amounts of money involved didn't make sense for them to I think one was a teacher 
one, I think she might even have been a pilot. They'd, they'd actually chosen not to go with the football contract and stay in the career paths that they were that they were tracking away mm. from the football. So I do think there are there are questions around making sure that the wages and the contracts mm. are a, a realistic, living, sensible amount of money for people that you yes. can consider putting your other roads that you might be following mm-hmm. on hold for the five, six, seven years, perhaps, that a contract has a life. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um you know, if a, if a club's expecting their players to be full time and to be in when they're told to be in, you know, for training, games, whatever it might be, then you have to make sure that they can live off what you're paying them without them having to have other commitments. Um, and that doesn't always happen in my eyes. And I think, especially in women's football, you run the risk of people like you said, not not taking up those contracts because for the sake of, you know, a lot of women's contracts also don't go beyond two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, yeah, it's great if you get it for that those two years, but what happens if you get injured or, you know, for whatever reason, you're not offered another contract either by that club or another club? Have you sacrificed a whole career for the sake of two years? And can you get back into what you were doing before? Mm-hmm. Or have you got something in you know, in waiting that even if you get to 35, 36, when you're going to retire, have you then got something to go into? So it's really important. And it's another sort of big concern of mine is these young players that are being offered full-time football at the age of 16, 17, 18, coming out of education perhaps um, earlier than they would have done 10, 15 years ago to then play for however long they do in football but then what happens when you're finished? Where are you going to go? You know, what what is in place for when you're finishing playing, whenever that may be? Um, and I think clubs have to take a responsibility for that. I've heard some horror stories where players are advised to drop out of uni or college mm-hmm. to play football. Um, but really, I think they should be looking after the person as well as the player and, and not doing everything for the sake of their team. They have to, they have to look at the well-being of those that they're employing. Um, and that, that's something I think needs to improve massively um not necessarily for football to be successful because i'm sure that will keep to keep growing um but just as i said for the for the sake of of players and people that are involved because if you do start hearing stories of people that finish playing and don't have anything then is it going to put the younger players off eventually and then you may run out of the talent that is making the game what it is so it's it could be become a bit of a catch-22 situation. Um, and I think we do have to be very careful of that and very mindful of, of what we're advising our young players to do. I, it's interesting, actually. I read an article the other day talking about how to continue the growth and development of women's football. Um, and there was a suggestion that they could do something along the lines of, in the UK anyway, like a draft system in the UK um, for women's football where girls and women are encouraged to go to university and kind of get picked up through that, where, whereby they're obviously their education and what they're doing outside of football is kind of a key part of driving them to stay involved in football as well. So obviously, I'm sure you can get some sort of superstars who are plucked for, uh, at 16 mm. uh, and can go on and achieve big things straight away. But obviously, there's some people who need to grow and change and improve as coaches. And I kind of like that idea in the way that it does promote, uh, again, like what I said before, like, like a sustainable way for women's football to develop, but also there being a responsibility there for the whole person, not just what they can do for yeah. 90 minutes on a Saturday. Yeah, I mean, that is a nice, that's a, a good idea. I think you'd have to make big changes to the college and university set up to make it a hugely competitive environment for those players to then stand out. I think America is obviously renowned for its its college sport to be unbelievable and um, the standards that, that there are because it's such a competitive, um, you know, to get a scholarship in American college or university is really difficult. And so you do get the best of the best playing in these college com- uh, competitions. Whereas here, university or college sport probably isn't taken as seriously. So you'd have to find a way of making that improve. And does that, you know, require a lot of investment? If you did it and and the, and the standards were there, then yeah, I think a draft system would be fantastic. But right now, I just don't think you would get the calibre of player um, necessary to then 
be successful, um, you know, across the board. Obviously, you're always going to get a few players that, that do come through college or university. But in the main, I think you get most of your players, you find them through their clubs rather than what they're doing at college. Yeah. How are you finding balancing your, you know, you're, you're moving more into media roles and mm. um, you've been doing some qualifications yourself, Helen, over the, over the last few years. How are you juggling all of that? And how, and how do you, what do you imagine tracking towards in the future? Um, I'm managing it by having a very, very useful set of uh, grandparents, both my parents <laughs> and my husband um, are really great in that they will take my children when I need the support. My husband as well, obviously, he works full-time, but weekends and evenings, he's he's often on daddy daycare. So, um, again, my family have, have been massive in me not only playing football, but like you said, trying to find things to do once I do have to hang up the boots. Um, I try and take as many opportunities as I can, whether that's media things. I'm also doing a bit of lecturing at University of South Wales, which is... I'm really enjoying it's something very different um but it's another thing that I can say that I've tried um there's there's all sorts of things that I'm I'm trying to do I think I I'm of the sort of mindset of give something a go if you love it you might you know you never know where it might go if you don't then at least you can tick it off and say right I've tried that it's not for me um, and again, if you're passionate about something, you find the time to do it. And I've been fortunate that I've met some really cool people, um, you know, through football and, and through other avenues that that have really offered me some amazing opportunities. And um, for me to think that they've gone out their way to do that for me, I always find that I should at least try and say yes to as many as I can, um, just as a as a gesture or a way of saying thank you, if nothing else. Um, but as I said, it could lead to something that, that could turn bigger once I've got more time on my hands, once the, the boots are hung up. But yeah, it's, it's good fun. It can be stressful at times, you know, early mornings and and late nights and trying to take kids here, here, there and everywhere and make sure they're being fed and looked after and that I'm not taking too many liberties with, with my parents or Matt's parents. But Touch wood, I think it's all going okay at the moment and, and they enjoy spending mostly time with their, with my two little ones. <laughs> when we go global, Helen, we'll make sure that we, uh, you know, we pull you in, in part of the podcast scene with us when, uh, you know, when we in- inevitably hit the big time. <laughs> Lovely. I, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. I'd actually love to ask you the questions about the ACL injuries because okay. I, think, I think it's a growing concern in women's yeah. sport. Because obviously with... Jess's injury and well there's been a number of not just in football but a number of mm. women athletes um Ada Hegerberg as well who are suffering ACL injuries and I was wondering what your thoughts were in terms of whether it's something about women's physique or the way we play games or what observations you had as a as a player yeah it's um it's a strange one because growing up Maybe because I suppose there wasn't as much coverage of it. You didn't have mm-hmm. social media and that kind of thing. But growing up, I'd never really heard of the injuries that, that get talked about so often mm-hmm. now. Um, whereas now it seems like every week there's another player that's sadly suffered from from an injury. You know, Elise mm-hmm. Hughes, bless her, she's yeah. um, going through the same thing herself. Rachel Rowe, Jess Fishlock, as you mentioned, they've all had it in the last year or so. Mm-hmm. And um, there was there, there has to be something about the makeup of a woman that makes us susceptible to that type of injury. Um, there's obviously a lot of research at the moment going into menstrual cycle and, and that side of it. There's also our, our physical build, you know, how our hips are aligned and knees and everything, how they all sort of line up. Um, but I feel like it's an area that really needs to be explored by the people that are smart enough to do so, um, scientists and, and what have you, because there's obviously something that's not right Mm-hmm. how you then deal with that I'm not sure because obviously you can't change what a person is built like um, maybe there's ways you can strengthen around those problem areas um, different kind of training methods I don't mm-hmm. know but it's definitely something that I think a lot of people are calling for more research into and, and I, I do believe that that, that is happening now um, but yeah it's a, it's obviously a, an injury that must be devastating to mm to suffer from um it's such a long time out and once you've done it once you always worry 
perhaps that it might happen again. Um, you know, I know several players that have been unfortunate enough to have recurring injuries in the same same area, but then there are others that that have no problems. So it mm-hmm. seems to be a little bit hit or miss in that in that side of things as well. So, yeah, um, obviously something you don't want to suffer from or anybody you don't want anybody to suffer from. Um, but hopefully in the next few years, we'll start to see some science and research that can can help players and, you know, manage themselves and, and help try to prevent these sorts of things happening. Do you think you could ultimately have a scenario where the rules of the game are changed slightly if it's found that a particular... It, it's difficult to picture it in... in, in football but perhaps in rugby you you could imagine a situation where there was a rule change that might be needed just because of a physicality that's yeah. found to be a weakness i mean i have a bit of a pet a pet theory as it were that women are playing games which historically have evolved as men's games yeah and i wonder if sports had actually like male sports and female sports had actually been able to evolve side by side whether actually women would tend to play different games that suited that suited our physicality better and i wonder whether we're actually doing our physical bodies a disservice by trying to play things which perhaps haven't actually you know we haven't we're not helping ourselves in that sense yeah yeah i've never never thought of it like that no one's ever Mm. sort of put it that way um my only thing would be that you know men get injured too um Mm -hmm. you know you see acl injuries in in men's football as well maybe not as often um so i I don't know i as i said i've not really thought about it It could be something that it's explored um but you'd have to be very careful that you didn't change it too much Mm -hmm. you know and and it goes sort of not wrong but you know if you change the game too much is it going to is it going to impact how people feel about it and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. But it's definitely an area that could be explored, um, something that, that may, may need looking into. Uh, but, yeah, it's the whole the whole situation, I think, is a difficult one and, and one that definitely needs looking at. And I just think I feel so sorry for all these players now that are going through the, mm-hmm. the process of the rehab, the diagnosis and everything in between. Um, and hopefully for their sake and for the younger generations, things will change and, and there will be things, as I said, things in place to help prevent or, you know, try and minimise these these injuries. It is a difficult one, isn't it? Because I think one of the strengths of football is that it it is the same everywhere. The rules are yeah. the same everywhere. There's been, you know, there's been um, a lot of uh, a lot of concern over here regarding children heading the ball, for example, mm-hmm. and that's, that's starting to have age restrictions over here in, in the US, and I know that's that's spreading. Um, and it is difficult to see what I think is a strength of the sport when it's yeah. the same for everybody and the people that are running around on the park on a Sunday are yeah. playing to the same rules that you're playing to as an international player. Um, but, uh, but I do think we have to be uh, adventurous at how we look at this and yeah. not dogmatic about how we look at this. Yeah, for sure. And and the heading thing, yeah, that's just come out here that mm-hmm. under a certain age, you're not allowed to head the ball. And then as you get older, it's it's restricted in terms of how often and how how much you, you do mm-hmm. heading in, in training and games. So, yeah, there are, there are, there are health and safety concerns all over the place um, in football and, and in all sport, and rightly so, because we do want to protect everybody as as science and technology grows, we have to grow with it. And if you find reasons that are, you know, making people poorly later on in life, then yeah, of course, you've got to do anything you can to, as I said before, minimise that or prevent it altogether. So um, yeah, I think you're right, you have to be adventurous um, and not just sort of brush it under the carpet. <laughs> if, if something comes up that you don't really like the idea of, you have to try and pursue it and, and make it work. But yeah, the, the whole thing about football like you said is is the beauty that you can chuck a couple of jumpers down and essentially you're playing the same game as as they are in an FA Cup final at Wembley or you know the the World Cup final somewhere around the world it is essentially the same game VAR aside but we won't get into that right now <laughs> we'll, we'll do another hour on that <laughs> yeah um, so yeah it's it's a real sort of fine line for for people to be walking and you know I hope that the people in charge understand that you know sometimes it doesn't come across that that they do understand, you know, the players and the fans' perspective. But 
in general, it'd be nice to keep football as football as it can be, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Indeed. Just to just to look a bit more on the Wales side of things, because um, I'm aware, I'm aware it's, we're taking up a lot of your time. Um, obviously, we've got the Estonia friendly coming up uh, in a week now. I think it is. Um, what do you mm-hmm. think is the kind of purpose of the of the friendly in in terms of preparing you for the rest of the campaign? But also, was there a, a link to obviously the previous manager, who's the the Estonian manager now, that kind of helped put this together? Yeah, I mean, how how the fixture came about, I'm not too sure. I'm not sure what goes into arranging international fixtures. I, I'd imagine it may have had something to do with it. Obviously, Yamo spent a long time with us um, in Wales, and I'm sure we built some excellent relationships with the, the powers that be and, yeah. and those that make these things happen. Um, in terms of for us and preparation for the second half of our qualifying campaign, um, quite often this time of year, we, we go abroad and play sort of three or four games in in quite a short space of time, um, which which is great for players. We love it, nothing more than playing a game every couple of days and, and having less time on the training pitch. Um, whereas I think for Jane and her staff, they feel we can get a lot more out of playing a game as well as having, you know, a few really good quality days together as a team because, you know, the, the time on the pitch and the training pitch is few and far between. So, for her to get the most out of this week, I think we're going to spend a lot of time working on how we're going to play. We've got two very different qualifiers in April in the Faroe Islands and Norway. Um, so I'm sure we're going to look into how we'll play each of those games as well as this one on Friday. But I think the other thing, going back to Yamo, is that we know that whatever team he manages is going to give us a good test. And that's important for us that that we're playing a game that's going to test us um, and is going to give us a good opposition to try and get out what what we need um, with the rest of this campaign in mind. Obviously, like the the way the camp the last campaign was run was based really on being strong defensively and then trying mm-hmm. to counter attack and and basically score a goal and and see if we can hang on to it. Since then, I feel like we've tried to play in a bit more of a, an expansive way and tried to be a bit more expressive. Um, do you think this is again an opportunity to kind of kind of further embed that? Um, that style of play yeah I think we had to grow from the last campaign there was no way we could go into this one playing exactly the same because a I think teams would figure us out um you know you can't stick to the same game plan for too long because in football now everybody's going to get footage of, of you and be able to look into your strengths and weaknesses so we have to you have to constantly evolve and, and change and adapt with the times and also I think we established the the sort of bedrock of our our team and and that was being very good defensively and and shutting teams out keeping lots of clean sheets but i think now we've done that we have to then try and be much more uh positive and um sort of expressive in the in the middle and and higher thirds of the pitch um that's not to say we're, we're negating what we do at the back it sometimes will leave you a bit more exposed at times but we know that when it comes to it, if we need to dig deep and defend for our lives, then we'll do that. We showed that in Belarus. Uh, we showed that at times in Northern Ireland. In fact, um, keeping clean sheets in both of those games wasn't easy. So we know we've got it there. Um, obviously, we were disappointed to concede a couple in the home game against Northern Ireland. And that was kind of a little bit of a wake-up call for us not to forget what we are good at and the fundamentals of our game. Um, but yeah, for sure, this this game on Friday that I'm sure Jane's going to look at it as a, a way of, you know, nailing down that defensive side, but also looking at, at ways to break teams down and, as I said, be more expressive and hopefully score a few more goals. Because it's interesting uh, you say that, like the, the, the comparison of the two Northern Ireland games, because ideally, I, I guess you kind of want to be somewhere in between that from um, being able to score the mm. goals, but also kind of keep the clean sheet at, at the other end as well. And like you say, the performance in Belarus was exactly exactly what you wanted really um obviously the game against the pharaohs six goals there that's obviously the highlight of the campaign and i'd imagine how you kind of want to continue to be able to play admittedly against kind of weaker opposition but that kind of way of playing football is definitely or certainly got to be the aim yeah and you know international football i know it's a bit of a cliche but there are no real easy games i think even that game at times they tested us when perhaps you weren't expecting them to. And if you could score six goals and not concede, whoever it's against, it's going to give you confidence, sticking the ball in the back of the net. You know, Tash came out of that game with 
bags of confidence because she'd scored a hat trick and you know we had goals scoring the first international goals and and that carries forward into the next game and I think if we can do that again maybe get a few goals on Friday um, and then that goes into the Pharaohs game again hopefully that confidence that repetition of, of seeing the ball hit the back of the net it doesn't get old it never gets boring yeah. believe you me um, and so we're, we're all desperate to do that everybody wants to watch entertaining football and see lots of goals as well and we're aware of that we don't want to be sort of seen as a, a boring boring Arsenal kind of side you know <laughs> we don't want to have that <laughs> that one nil as, as great as it was and, and it was a magnificent campaign to be a part of last time out and it was exactly the kind of campaign we needed. But we know, to, as I said, to go on to that next level and start competing, we need to start finding the back of the net as regularly as we can. And, and we're doing that now. We're building. And, and that's what Jane is, is trying to do over these last 12 to 18 months. That's been the aim, um, to progress our, our style of play, you know, all over the pitch and, and not just defensively. I feel like that New Zealand game was maybe that kind of watershed moment where that where that kind of came to fruition in holding on and defending mm. so well, but obviously kind of grabbing the goal because I think it had been a fair few games without a goal um, before that. So it obviously made a difference. I will also say as well, actually, um, before Rhiannon scored her first goal for Wales, um, she had been chatting to us in the build-up to that. So if you do want a good omen in terms of you getting back on the, <laughs> oh, on the score sheet again. That sounds great. I love it. <laughs> um, we are basically everyone's good luck charm. So if anyone is short of a goal, <laughs> Perfect. Just send them our way. Um, just, just to just to look back at the campaign, just a, a little bit more. Um, again, just talking about those two Northern Ireland games. Um, I feel mm-hmm. like looking looking at it from my perspective, there's kind of been a bit of a, a target almost in in on Laura O'Sullivan to an extent. Um, kind of high balls being played into her, and that seems to be a tactic to other other teams. Uh, uh, looking to kind of exploit maybe kind of balls into the box and, and, and see how Wales kind of cope under that sort of pressure. Is that something that is being talked about or aware of or was that just kind of symptomatic of those couple of games? I think um, like Laura has been exceptional for us. There's no two ways about it. She single-handedly at times kept us in the campaign right up until that, that England game um, in Newport. And I, I think... I don't know. It's difficult for her because she has had a target put on her back a little bit and has had a lot of stick that was, is not deserved at all. I agree. Um, but it, sadly, it's the life of a goalkeeper. You know, you make yeah. one mistake and everybody knows about it. If I make make a mistake up the other end, we've got a chance to get the ball back and and go again. Whereas a goalkeeper makes a mistake and and it can all, it can be catastrophic at times. And you know, there was no sense of blame or anything like that in the dressing room after that game. We all rallied round her. She's She's an unbelievable character. She's a great girl, and you know she's someone that's come into football relatively late in her, mm. in a you know in age. She's not been involved in it for many years at all. So her development in a short space of time has been incredible. Uh, John, our goalkeeper coach, has worked so hard with her and all the other goalkeepers, and and you know she's another one of those players that that does have a full time job. So for her to then go through the sort of anguish of of that mistake or you know that moment I don't like to call it a mistake that moment in the game and and some of the backlash she's had from it is is difficult for us all to take and I I don't know teams perhaps have gone with high balls and you know try to target target her I don't know but I, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily going to be one that's fruitful obviously it worked for Northern Ireland in that instance but I, I wouldn't say it's something that is a necessarily weak part of her game. Um, she's a tall girl. She came up, the way she dealt with crosses and, and high balls in that game against England and Southampton was suggest to me that it, it's not an area of concern for us at all. Um, so I'd, I'd back her any day. You know, if teams are going to throw balls into the box at her, then then they can do that. She'll come out and claim more than she doesn't. So for us, it, it's not an issue. Um, and it's up to us to stop those balls coming in in the first place. You know, we've got to protect her as much as she's got to make those saves we've got to make it hard for the teams to get in that position in the first place I agree it's an interesting one you talk about the stick that she got um because obviously you know football fans have notoriously short memories and some of the shot stopping she yeah. did um you know in the previous campaign but obviously equally in this campaign as well um she's been a kind of a, a valuable role uh, she plays obviously a massively valuable role um in what she kind of contributes to everything um mm. l- looking ahead um Obviously, there's the Pharaohs game coming up and then what we're kind of looking at as the big games, I guess, against Norway. Um, 
though i mean if we want to kind of qualify by rights automatically those are the big games that are going to be we need to mm-hmm. get we need to get something from is there also an element perhaps of kind of looking at the the potential of what will happen of coming second and the playoff route and would that still be seen as an achievement or is it just kind of all or nothing i mean we've never got to a playoff before so i think yeah. to finish second in a group that guarantees you at least a playoff spot and for us that is a step further than we've been before. Um, of course, we're looking to qualify automatically. If we can't do that, then the next thing is obviously a playoff. And then you deal with that when it comes to it. We we can't get carried away of trying to work out how many points we need or goals or you know anything that's going on in any of the other groups. Because if you start to get bogged down in that, you can take your eye off what you're actually trying to do as a group. Um, again, it's probably a bit boring to say that maybe... Maybe not what people want to hear, um, but it is genuinely the case. I couldn't tell you what was going on in any of the other groups right now. I haven't looked at it. I know that some groups have played more games or less games, so it's quite hard to tell anyway. Um, But for us, yeah, it's all about finishing second and dealing with what the consequences of that are when they come. Um, If it means going to a playoff, then we attack that with everything we've got. We prepare for those those two games as best we can. Um, and if we end up in the finals next summer in 2021, then it's job done. It doesn't really matter how we got there. Absolutely. If we're there, that's that's what we want to do and that's where we want to be. And um, I think, I, I can't speak for everyone, but I'm pretty sure that for most of the girls, that'll be the pinnacle of certainly their international careers, if not their career as a whole. And, you know, we're, we're all fully behind that goal and that dream. And, um, and Jane and the staff and all the players are doing everything we can to get ourselves into position to, to try and be a part of it. Absolutely. Um, I mean, obviously, it would be a, a massive achievement for Wales to, to to make the playoffs. Obviously, we all want everyone, we all want you to qualify, of course. But um, I think it's important to remember, like you said, that we've never never got that far before. And that would, of mm. course, be, be an achievement uh, on its own. Um, just last couple of questions. I'm sure you uh, want to get back to your kids um, <laughs> and, see, okay. and see your husband as well. Um, <laughs> looking at the squad that's been called up for that, I, I'm intrigued kind of how you see your role in it a little bit um, in that there's some, you know, young girls, 16 year olds being called up uh, kind of in, in mm-hmm. the, in the attacking area. Um, do you, is, is, do you see part of your role kind of coaching them as, and mentoring them a little bit, or are you still kind of very much focused on you being the one who wants to get out on the pitch and, and grab a goal for yourself? It's a little bit of both, really. I mean, obviously, first and foremost, I'd, I'd love to be on the pitch as much as I can be. If Jane makes a decision that it's one of the younger players, then, then that's her call. And, you know, I trust her judgment fully. Um, I've always sort of had that nature where I like to try and help anybody that is in our team, in my team, Um, whether that's become more apparent as I've got older, I don't know. Um, But I don't like to be bitter or negative to someone that may or may not be, you know, vying for the same spot as me. But I, I like to try and help as much as I can without sort of imposing myself on anyone you know I'm not going to go up to the the kids and sort of say listen to me I know best because yeah. of course that's not the case but if if they ever need any advice or they ever want to you know chat about anything whether it's on the pitch or off the pitch then then I'm happy to do that and I don't know maybe Jane sees me as as a, a figure that that can help in that way maybe I don't know but I, I just kind of take each camp as it comes and um, yeah, of course, my, my aim is to be on the pitch and hopefully contribute to a winning performance. But if I can't be on the pitch, then then I'll be supporting the ones that are and, and hoping that I get my chance at some point. Um, the last question for me is, we did have someone ask us on Twitter, Aaron Evans, uh, to do as many jokes as you can in three minutes. You've just rolled your eyes. Um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm obviously not going to ask you to do uh, as many jokes as you can in three minutes. Um, but um, I don't think I've got as many, enough jokes to fill up three minutes. I've got enough jokes to fill up three seconds. <laughs> uh, the reason I bring it up is because, like he says, obviously, you know, and, and as I saw on your uh, Watford tweet earlier this week, uh, that you think you're pretty hilarious do, do, do you do you see yourself as having kind of a, um one of the kind of bigger personalities in that, in that I'm like I'm thinking of Tash obviously who we've spoken to is very much a big personality do you kind of see yourself as that as having that as well in some ways um I'd say that I'm a bit more of a the sly one that will say little things <laughs> that no one's expecting and only maybe some people can hear um whereas Tash 
Tash is Tash, you know, anyone that's ever met her or spoken to her, she's bright, she's bubbly, got a massive smile on her face all the time. And, you know, she's she's a little bit louder perhaps than, than some others. But I I back myself, you know, <laughs> as being one of the funnier ones. Um, but it's, it, it's a kind of, yeah, it's a bit more subtle and a, a bit more sly at times. I, I'd fancy myself in one of those competitions, you know, where you have to slate each other, a bit like a, a dance-off, but but when you're kind of... I know what you mean. You're doing a slanging match, yeah. <laughs> um, we won't do that now because I wouldn't like to do that to you guys. But, um, I feel, I yeah, feel, I feel um, like we need a bit more ammo on you as well. I feel like... But it's all in good fun. I'm never nasty to anyone. I'd like to point that out. It's all. I'm a, I only, I only take the mick out of people I like. So, if you're fortunate enough to be on the end of one, then, uh, then it's a good sign. Okay, you should count yourselves as lucky. Okay, I'm, it's good I've actually just realised something else as well. That this is our fiftieth podcast. Oh, I'm honoured. Oh, so oh, we've got an anniversary. Yeah, yeah. I, happy I, anniversary. With the, with the benefit of hindsight, I wish I'd kind of got some sort of baseball cap and sprayed. I don't. What colour do you have for a fiftieth cap? Like you have a golden cap if you get a hundred caps. Well, the one I got for my fiftieth is golden. Um, oh, okay. Maybe they didn't think anyone would get to hundred. <laughs> Jess and Jess and Lauren both have, and Sophie's very close to it. So I'm not sure. I think hers was golden as well. So maybe I don't know silver. All right. Well, I'll spray a baseball cap silver, and uh, and I'll, I'll 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 present it to you. I'm sure it'll go it almost <laughs> as important to you as Helen as your uh, you know the match the match ball when you scored six against Azerbaijan. I'm sure it's just as important. <laughs> Oh, well, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, we are very, very grateful. And, uh, yeah, thank you to everyone for listening. And good luck with the upcoming games, Helen. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.